Welcome to the BJJ360 podcast. This is the inaugural September 2020 episode. I'm Sarah Gill, orthopedic trauma consultant at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast. Our plan is to have a monthly podcast alternating between a journal club discussion of the papers in the recent 360 uh, issue and a roundtable discussions on topics that affect our day-to-day clinical practice that we really hope will be of interest to our listenership. Whether you're joining us on your daily commute uh, or your weekend jog or just waiting for that quick spinal and block to cook, um, we're very grateful that you've taken time to listen. It only seems polite and frankly sensible to commence the podcast by asking uh, two of the BJJ360 editorial team uh, to join me today, and that is Mr. Brett Rockos and Professor Ben Oliver. Uh, Brett is currently the Senior Neuroorthopedic Spine Fellow in Toronto Western Hospital. He previously completed a Spine and Trauma Fellowship also in Toronto and finished his training in Bristol in 2019. He's involved in the Exile Medics Group, uh, providing medical support to many varied extreme sports races. And I'm told that's in fact where he first met our second uh, panel member who barely needs an introduction. Professor Ben Oliver is a professor in trauma orthopedics at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. He's the editor-in-chief of 360 and a full-time trauma surgeon with a specific interest in uh, trauma frames and non-unions. And as well as having contributed a huge amount to large multi-center studies over the last few years, he has certainly contributed a lot to the emerging rib fracture fixation practice in the UK. In the first half of the September episode, um, we're going to ask Mr. Brett Rokos for his three papers of highlight from the August edition of the BJJ 360. And then we're going to discuss in detail uh, the paper he selected, which addresses the question of uh, of complete traumatic spinal cord injury. I'd like to start off today's podcast just by drawing attention to the feature from the August uh, 2020 BJJ 360. And this really looked at um, the somewhat unpopular topic, I'm sure, of litigation and claims. And the way this has been looked at uh, by by John Machen, who's the clinical lead for litigation as part of the GERF program, is that program's contribution to how claims have changed over the years in relation to trauma and orthopedics. And the good news is that there's been a drop in the number of claims and costs associated with those claims over the last four years in TNO, which is not what we've seen in other surgical disciplines. And I think that's very encouraging. But one of the key things that I actually took away from this piece is that only a third of claims relate to a previously lodged complaint or critical incident. And that really made me think about how we use our M&Ms and how we collect M&M data. Uh, I think it's a very sensitive subject, obviously, claims are made uh, against clinicians, are made against departments, but the key message here was that unless that information is being shared uh, as part of M&M and lessons are being learned, um, then we might be really robbing ourselves of what is really useful information going forward and improving our practice in relation to patients. So this was a very positive piece. It really looks like GERFT has put us ahead of the curve in orthopedics and articulates what we already know, um, which is that learning from claims and incidents is really important in improving uh, patient care. And it really relies upon robust local systematic practices and that manager engagement in that dialogue is essential. So it really made me think about going back to the department and looking at, at how we manage our M&M data. I think that's right, Sarah. I think it's one of those kind of um, dark secrets, isn't it? That people try and hide in the corner, the number of claims that are going on and that sort of stuff. And, and it is really difficult when one comes in, you know, personally, I've had, had a couple over the years and, um, 
you get protected from it as a trainee and then you start as a consultant and you find suddenly there's all these complaints mm-hmm. <laughs> and you sort of try and deal with them and you know often they're unfair and, and so on but actually the, the truth is that the complaint leads to the claim and if you recognize the complaint it's not necessarily accepting 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 guilt but there's patterns of behavior that result in complaints and actually a, a, uh, minimizing those seems a sensible thing to do. And I think that's a, a really, you know, good message from the paper. And I agree with you, you know, complaints are very rarely discussed at M&M, you know, who wants to go through their dirty laundry, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, in spines, we're certainly acutely aware of the, the risks that uh, we're undertaking and, and complaints are a big part of that. And if you look at the business literature, we know that for every one complaint we receive, there's eight to 10 that are considered by, by somebody that aren't submitted. So, People are aware that these mistakes and problems are occurring. They're just not getting around to submitting complaints. The other thing is to come back to Ben's point there about, you know, as a trainee, you know, we, we don't have a concept of how complaints and, and claims and so on move through the system and how to not just prevent them, but how to address them as an, as an inevitable part of practice and incorporating that into the M&M process where invariably the, the trainees are involved. I think it's, it's key and will be a key part of the uh, preparing for consultant practice shift we're seeing in the syllabus for trainees. Yeah, I think they're really interesting highlights, particularly, as you say, the bridge between sort of training and then moving into consultantship. And it, I, th- I think it very much does feel like the dirty laundry. And, I th- and that's why I think maybe management facilitation of those discussions, you know, in a very, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to say non-judgmental way, etc. But I think it's actually violent, you know, vital rather for the, for the integrity of the process. And I think it's something that, you know, uh, certainly I think we could, you know, all look at probably most of the most departments is how we deal with that. Yeah, that's right. Brett, if we come to you next, your papers to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always impressed when uh, when we go through the uh, the papers that we choose. That those, as you say, that, that have a direct impact on practice. And what always catches my eye are the negative results because I think too many, too often, uh, papers are published when they've got impressive positive results. So the three I've chosen are two spine, predictably, and one actually uh, from the oncology literature. And the first I've looked at is a, a study out of Taipei in Taiwan that compares orotracheal uh, intubation with nasotracheal intubation when you're doing anterior cervical decompressions and fusions. We know that things like a hoarse voice and dysphagia and things following surgery are really common. And what this paper's done is compared two groups with 55 in each patient with orotracheal intubation and nasotracheal intubation, a really simple methodology. Everything else all being equal, cuff uh, pressures inflated to the same um, to the same pressure and, and so on. But what they've shown is that the nasotracheal tubes actually gives you a lower impact of uh, lower incidence of dysphagia and hoarseness of voice. And from my own experience, I know that this is something that patients are alarmed of, uh, alarmed with the moment they wake up. And so anything that reduces the incidence of that complication, I think, is really useful. It's not something we typically consider, but it's something we can direct our anaesthetic colleagues towards and say, hey, you know, have you thought of this? It's a really practical tip and there's some decent evidence to support it. And it's pretty robust paper, so I'd certainly recommend anybody who's involved in that sort of practice looking at it. The second paper that drew uh, my attention actually is is quite a short paper and again very practical. It's again spine and it talks about how if we start cases later in the day, how those cases cost more money, take longer and have a higher rate of complication. This is a retrospective analysis and they looked at over three and a half thousand patients who uh, elected patients who had ACD and posterior cervical decompression and fusion over eight years and they divided them into those cases that started before or after 2 p.m. And what they found was that when they uh, conducted sub-analysis, the patients undergoing the surgery in the later group were more likely to be discharged to somewhere other than their own home 
were more likely to return to the operating theater during their initial stay for a complication, wound complication or, or hematoma or something like that, um, and were more likely to return to the emergency department within three months following surgery. They've concluded that actually better scheduling is a way to decrease utilization and costs. I suspect that it's slightly more complicated than that uh, of just saying, well, you know, before or after lunch. But it starts to really lend evidence to recognize that actually we are human. We do get tired starting later in the day. You know, it's not always a great idea for these more complicated patients. And maybe it's something, again, we need to draw, our, draw attention of our theater scheduling staff and, and so on towards just being a bit more cognizant of, of what cases we're doing when. And lastly, and somewhat perhaps atypically, I've taken something from the oncology literature, and this just appealed to me because I thought this is a, it's a great study that's going to influence care. And what this group uh, out of Columbus in the USA have done, have looked at neoadjuvant radiation and improving the negative margin resection in sarcoma in the extremity. And what they've done is they've taken 1,400 patients from uh, the US uh, cancer database, and they've conducted a sub-analysis looking at those who went, underwent neoadjuvant adjuvant, and no radiotherapy prior to extremity sarcoma. And actually found that neoadjuvant therapy led to a higher frequency of negative margins, but didn't influence survival at all uh, in this group. They showed that radiation at any point during the treatment reduces local recurrences, which I suppose stands to reason and goes alongside uh, the existing literature. But I thought that you know, actually, this is a group that stood up on their pedestal and said, actually, neoadjuvant radiotherapy, yeah, goes with all the others, but actually it doesn't really improve survival compared to normal treatment. Maybe it compromises uh, post-operative wound care, but actually they, they pin their hat on the wall and said, improves resection, but not the survival. So, you know, perhaps there's something to think about, but as I say, you know, a negative result is still a useful result, and I think it's going to influence the treatment of these patients with uh, extremity sarcoma. Yeah, fan fantastic. Yeah, really uh, succinct um, summaries there are very complex papers. So thank you. Uh, thanks very much for that, Brett. Um, right, we're going to move on to the sort of the main course, as it were. Um, so, Brett, you have chosen a spinal yeah. paper that talks about essentially complete traumatic spinal cord injuries. And I found this paper really fascinating as, a, as someone who has, you know, no um, spinal yeah. practice, but is you know, it obviously involved in patients around the peripheries in terms of the multiply injured mm. patients, etc. So I was really interested by this paper and really interested to get your take on it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, spinal cord injury, you know, in, across the UK is really centralized in regional centers and so on. But I think it's something that I would certainly expect every orthopedic trainee and if not a consultant involved in, in trauma care to be aware of. You know, going back over the last decade or so, there's been a lot of um, interest and in some really good quality studies looking at traumatic spinal cord injury. And this paper out of Amsterdam really has, has sought to bring all those together in a, almost a narrative review type format. And what they've done is looked at the outcomes of traumatic spinal cord injury with a complete Asia A uh, injury in the cervical, the thoracic, and uh, effectively the conus or corda equina. And they've taken each of those in, in subsections and looked at how useful early decompression is when tackling each of those. Now, of course, the cervical spine, we all know is the most vulnerable to a complete spinal cord injury. And that's probably the most well-trodden route, looking back to something fairly landmark like the STASIS trial back in 2012, which almost comprehensively proved that early decompression was the way to go to improve spinal cord recovery by one to two levels, which can be the difference between being institutionalized and you know, independent at home if you look mm -hmm. at something from a C4 to a 6 and so on. What really caught my eye with this paper was, was actually that they looked at the evidence for the thoracic cord and the, and the lumbar and conus. And the reason that's interesting is there's a lot less evidence for this. So they looked at 
at the thoracic cord and, and found that you know up to 34% of people with um, with cervical spine had total uh, total cord injury, uh, but in the thoracic spine that's much less well defined and and that um, that's somewhere between 16 and 73% so quite a quite a wide range. Um, and it occurs in up to 70% of polytrauma patients have a degree of, of thoracic spine injury. So it's something we all need to know about. At one year, those patients with a thoracic Asia A, 89.3 they quoted. So now 90% of patients with a thoracic total cord injury will stay with an Asia A. Then they're, they're not going to improve really a great deal. Though they've said the mean recovery is between 0.1 to 4.5 points at one year after injury, and that's referring to the Asia score. You know, again, it's a wide range, and, and the vast majority will not make an improvement regardless of whether you decompress early or late. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the conus and the quarter equinus, this is where it gets really interesting because picking those two uh, conflicting diagnoses apart is in practice very difficult to do. And notoriously, the conus medullaris syndrome is, it has an enormously variable, um, variable presentation and, and some, uh, some centers will treat that as a quarter equina and urgent decompression and others will leave it to recover on its own. If you have an injury to the conus or the quarter equina, this paper quotes 21% of patients will present with a complete lack of motor and sensory function. That's probably less than my experience. I would say it's probably slightly lower than that, but you know, you can't argue with the numbers here. And they're saying that actually the recovery with a conus or, or quadriquina injury is better than with a thoracic with up to th- between three and five motor score points improvement compared to 0.1 to four in, um, in the thoracic cord. You know, this paper, the conclusion really is that surgical decompression of the cord within 24 hours, regardless of where in the cord is injured, is largely difficult to disprove and, and is to be recommended throughout. And the meta-analysis with regards to cervical cord shows that you get this two, two Asia grade improvement uh, in about 25% of patients who have uh, decompression within a day, 24 hours, rather than 10% in over 24 hours. So the evidence in the cervical cord is pretty clear. And the thoracic cord, as I say, I think the evidence is much less clear. There's a lot less data out there. There's a much more variation in the presentation of a thoracic cord injury. And similarly, in the, um, in the lumbar spine and cord equina, again, the data really isn't there to support it. There is some studies looking at comparing your classic cord equina syndrome that we're familiar with, with the disc prolapse and perineal numbness and so on, comparing that to an injury and suggesting, well, maybe we should treat them the same. Maybe we should decompress within eight hours. Maybe that leads to a better, a better outcome. But the data is so vague that it, it's impossible to really draw a robust conclusion there. Well, that's really one of the things that I was thinking of uh, that, that came to my mind when I was reading this, because mm. this is a very comprehensive literature review of sort of trying yeah. to bring together the current evidence base. And one of the things I, I'd written down is looking at the numbers um, in the studies, you know, barring the meta-analysis, which looks pr- really at the question of timing of decompression. Yeah. Um, the numbers in all of the studies are relatively small and certainly very small in orthopedic terms. So my yeah, first question would be, have we got enough data to answer these questions yet or is it this is the best we're going to get because studies of these nature are are very difficult yeah so i think the honest answer is no if you look at it completely dispassionately we don't have the numbers to sit here and say there is a right or wrong answer here you know the most robust evidence comes from cervical spine i think there's very little doubt now that early decompression the c-spine is useful Outside of that, I think we're looking at a best practice type picture rather than definitive evidence. Do I think the numbers are ever going to be there? I think over time they might be. A lot of this data comes from North America where there's a much 
greater focus on timing of surgery because of the, the culture of practice over here. Um, but I think meta-analysis is the only way we're ever going to increase numbers. Mm -hmm. The other problem we're starting to come against, of course, with these studies is the ethics of doing them. There's now increasingly, you know, less and less um, appetite for doing studies where you're, you're purposefully delaying surgery at all. So these are all observational studies where for some other reason, a patient's surgery is delayed. And one of the weaknesses of this that the authors actually mentioned is that actually in polytrauma patients that are unstable or have other life-threatening injuries, those are the patients that are in the longer than 24 hour uh, surgery group. And those other injuries could be directly related to, to their cord injury and their, their lack of, of recovery following it. Hypotension, a SERS type response. We know that injures the cord yeah. through secondary mechanisms. You know, failings that I'll showed that, you know, a number of years ago now. So I think it's going to be a very complicated um, process. And I can see it being incremental rather than a single leap forward. For me, what it's taught me is, well, you know, Brett, it's, it's going to be hard to justify delaying decompression of a cord injury wherever you are in the spine in the absence of a very clear clinical reason not to. Of course, that needs to be balanced with the logistics of where you work in particular. And we can't forget in the UK with our shift in practice that operating at 2 a.m. in a unit that doesn't do this sort of work almost on a routine basis. Yeah, so exactly. That was, you know, that was something else that you've already touched on, on, on another big thing. So if you read this paper in broad brushstrokes, it would say, okay, well, the most common complete traumatic spinal cord injuries is cervical. That's where we've got the most data to say, actually, these patients do best um, if A, they're surgically decompressed and if B, they're surgically decompressed early. Yeah. Now, thinking about that, you know, early, i.e. 24 hours of, of, of injury, um, two questions around that. One is that would that represent if we just said, okay, broad brushstrokes, we're going to accept that now as best practice, and we're going to institute that. Would that represent a significant change in practice in the UK? And B, how doable is that? What would we need to put in place to allow that to happen? Yeah, so I don't think it would be a radical change in practice, but I do think it would perhaps lead the theatre management profession, if you like, to just rethink their balance of, of skills and so on, you know, out of hours, because it is, we're in that difficult bridge between neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery, where there's a lot of, of pooling of resource and, and crossing of nursing staff. So you bring a team familiar with the spine, they may not be familiar with the, you know, the, the bilateral, uh, the two plating of the distal femur, which is far more likely to, to need some attention out of hours, or even something simpler like an X fix. I think it is achievable, um, I, I think it is achievable and I can see a time where it just is what has to be done. I mean, the same way that I think core requirements need to be tackled really aggressively, but I do think it will need a shift in practice. Alongside that, speaking, you know, on the soapbox as, as someone who's recently finished their, their training, you know, trainees need to be, will need to become familiar with identifying this as A, a priority and B, being able to get the ball rolling with these cases, you know, out of hours. It's not something yep. typically tackled by, by trainees. Or, or more junior nursing staff and so on so you know as as the tides shift you know we we following uh, following the consultants need to know what we're doing with this sort of thing yeah I, I think certainly you know when I um you know was thinking about you know the last time that I was considering these uh questions in a big way was probably in all honesty a few years ago preparing for the FRCS finals when you're going to ask, be asked to um, defend your practice regarding certain things and at, certainly at that time it was I think accepted um, that, you know, the non-complete traumatic spinal cord injuries were a much greater clinical priorities to the complete. Yeah. 
Um, and the tide yeah. has already changed on that, especially with, with cervical spine stuff. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, traditionally we were told there's something to lose with those who are incomplete, exactly. so we should work quickly. And those who are complete, it's kind of game over. We now know that's not the case. We now know that urgent decompression you know, prevents that secondary injury that we're seeing with the free radical formation and, and some of the drug trials coming in now that are that are seeking to control that secondary injury rely on that early decompression. So I think those waters have shifted. That's a really interesting update for me. And other small thing I took away from this was just about who should be doing that initial documentation and assessment. You know, I thought it was really interesting yeah. to be acknowledged in this big literature review that actually, you know, the, the seniority of the person doing that and recording that is really vital because even there, you know, they were finding in, in pretty what were otherwise, you know, as robust a papers as possible, that actually there were significant discrepancies. Uh, and therefore, you know, someone yeah. experience needs to be documenting the, the, the neurological exam. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's something that we do, you know, every day when you're on a, a neurological or, yeah, or a spine based sure. practice and don't think too much about it. But it is something that you're, you know, a non non spinal orientated training might do very infrequently. And as you say, particularly around the exam, but aside from that, and we know that in a polytrauma setting, you know, that there's a thousand things going on at once and quite often the neurological exam is not cursory, but it has to be done briefly. We've all seen the Asia sheet, which is a very comprehensive doc documentation of of how things are and, and you can have a, another debate to whether how about how practical that is yes. but you know i think you know it needs to be borne in mind and you just have to do the best you can do but ultimately the, the uh, earlier the decompression is done i think this is moving in the direction of saying the, the better the recovery will be for that patient yeah fa really fascinating and and a great sort of um you know it, it i think it's a paper with Quite a clear message in terms of, as you say, I think the tide sort of, you know, turnings, the sea shifting, I think that's a very sort of um, thing with this paper and it kind of lends a lot of credence to some refocus on that as a, as a, as a mm -hmm. clinical topic. Brett, thanks for picking such interesting papers and your really interesting uh, insight into that area of surgery. I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to that as much as we've enjoyed uh, taking part in it and please do join us for the second part of the September podcast where myself and Ben Oliver um, will also contribute um, our picks from the journal.